Hi, everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Brohl. Please join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN, as we share the nature, history, folklore, and charm of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. Be sure to check out the entire collection of podcasts on ASPN related to our oceans, coasts, and inland seas at coastalnewstoday.com. If you like North Coast Chronicles, please share it with your friends and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, it's official. We are finally doing an episode of North Coast Chronicles about fishing and fisheries in the Great Lakes. And while I'm not kidding, if perchance you happen to have been around the Great Lakes, maybe you've enjoyed one of its many fantastic fishing opportunities or one of many distinguished scientists who have dedicated their life's work to the Great Lakes. Today's episode is From Walleye to Whitefish, Fishing and Fisheries of the Great Lakes. And we have three, yes, three, experts to share their extensive experiences in the Great Lakes. Mr. Jesse Simpkins is the immediate past chair of the Board of American Sport Fishing Association, where he led the ASA to advance many environmental priorities in support of sport and recreational fishing. He is also Vice President of Marketing of St. Croix Rods. St. Croix Rods is a Wisconsin-based company that is celebrating 75 years in business making American handcrafted fishing rods and equipment. He has been involved in the fishing industry for 27 years. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks so much. And Dr. Mark Gaydon is the Deputy Executive Secretary of the Great Lakes Fisheries Commission and an Assistant Professor for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan. Dr. Gaydon has worked extensively on issues involving regional coordination of fisheries policies, communications and outreach, invasive species, federal appropriations, Great Lakes protection and stewardship, multi-jurisdictional governance, infrastructure and ecosystem restoration. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for having me. Our third guest is Mr. Dennis Ede. Since 2011, he has served as the executive director of the Michigan Steelhead and Salmon Fishermen's Association. The association brings sport fishers together with an emphasis on steelhead and salmon and has chapters in 11 cities across the state of Michigan. He is an ardent tournament fisherman in the 333 tournament trail for 20 years. We're going to ask about that later. And he publishes the Great Lakes Sport Fishing News, a bi-monthly news magazine. He is also active with the Michigan Steelhead and Salmon Fishermen's Association in Lansing, Michigan, working alongside the State Department of Natural Resources Fisheries Division, serving on both the Lake Michigan and Lake Huron Citizens Advisory Committees. Thanks for joining us, Dennis. Glad to be here. Well, there is a lot more about each guest, and we'll talk about it later in the program. And with us, as always, is our trusty engineer and my talented co-producer, Tyler Buckingham. Hey, Tyler, what have you been up to? Well, Helen, it's good to be here, and I've been enjoying a rainy couple days here in Southern California. It's quite nice. You haven't had enough rain? No. As a matter of fact, I think we need many more inches before we can pull out of this drought, so I'm, I'm enjoying the drops coming down. That's probably true. More th- the more is better. Um, Tyler, in our January episode, we interviewed Will Friedman, the president and CEO of the Port of Cleveland. And the Port of Cleveland is a bulk freight and container shipping port at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River on Lake Erie, obviously in Cleveland. It's the third largest port in the Great Lakes and the fourth largest Great Lakes port by annual tonnage. We talked a bit about Cleveland's origin story within the Western Reserve. And of course, we talked about the nature of Great Lakes shipping and how the port is leaning forward to meet future needs, including related to cruise shipping. But we had a few sidebar conversations. The Port of Cleveland is partial owner in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. 
and is fully engaged in the proposal to build a nearby wind farm. So Tyler, what interested you most about that podcast? Well, Helen, first, I mean, you know, I'm a history buff. So I found the early history of the port to be interesting. And actually the whole city, I mean, the the, the placement of the city is strategic for its shipping uh, reasons. And this goes back to our kind of ongoing uh, Great Lakes history discussion of how the lakes drove industrialization in the upper Midwest and Great Lakes region. So I found that to be particularly interesting. Of course, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the fact that Will Friedman is the has is basically the lease holder <laughs> as the president and CEO of the port of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's about the most Cleveland thing ever. Yeah, I, I noticed he didn't like offer us tickets, by the way. I just want to say we don't, you know, have a ringside seat to see John Lennon's suit jacket. But but be that as it may, it was really interesting. It was. And Will did uh, make it clear that he wasn't allowed to just go in there and pull a guitar off the wall and, you know, jam out. It was uh, he just holds the lease. But it's interesting, Helen, you know, it speaks to the redevelopment of our working waterfront. And it sounds like the Port of Cleveland has redeveloped and become a bit more of a civilian space. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to um, say that there aren't, you know, there's obviously ports in the Great Lakes who have more tonnage, you know, Duluth being one of them. And Duluth is probably still listed in the top 10 ports in the, the only Great Lakes port in the top 10 ports uh, within the United States. Um you know, but in the vein of not or por- all ports are the same, I think it's safe to say that's also the case just even within the Great Lakes. Great Lakes ports are not the same. So, I, you know, I think we'll, we'll have to talk to other future port directors or talk to port directors in the future. But, you know, the Port of Cleveland is is interesting because it is both it's a, you know, a financier, basically, so mm-hmm. so to speak. And they have a lot of non-port related activities. Now, as a result, they are independently funded and many ports are asked to be independently funded. That's the goal, right? But some do it better than others. Um, but the Port of Cleveland really has gone gangbusters. And um, I thought it was also interesting to learn more about the proposal for the wind farm, offshore wind farm off of Cleveland. You know, um, Everybody has an opinion about wind farms, um, but um, I, I had thought that there was more initiatives in the Great Lakes. So it was interesting that really Cleveland's still kind of working on what that means. Um, and you had asked the question at, even the in the December episode, so I thought it was interesting we could go back and visit that. Like what is going on in the lakes? There's a lot, of, plenty of wind in the lakes. Plenty of wind in the lakes and a lot of opportunity, I would imagine, for particularly the Great Lakes region, given all of the history with shipbuilding and, you know, heavy, heavy Great Lakes shipping. I mean, these wind farms are major industrial projects that, you know, if, if you were to ask me, I would say the Great Lakes are well suited from an infrastructure perspective to build out an industry up there. And it could bring a new wave of jobs and opportunity for the region, which I find very interesting. And you also mentioned uh, about these cruise lines that are coming to the Port of Cleveland and now transiting the Great Lakes. And I I find this to be very interesting, Helen. It it kind of reminds me of our episode, uh, Dance Halls and Full Dress Balls. And here we have a, these are, these new cruise ships that are transiting the Great Lakes. These are not, you know, your mega 5,000 person vessels. These are smaller, more luxury cruise vessels. And, I, you know, it just, it harkens me back to that kind of gilded age era. And here we are 
in the 2020s, and we've got luxury cruise lines transiting the Great Lakes yet again. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't venture a guess that the people riding on them are in their full dress ball outfits, um, probably more a camera and a pair of sunglasses. But um, I, I said it before, I'll say it again. Boy, if anybody's out there listening from that business, I sure want to get on there. I'll be happy to lecture on anything you want. We got to do a live podcast on board, Helen. There we go. There we go. That would be great. Well, it, it was fun. And um, so I, I appreciate what, uh, Will joining us last month um, and uh, more Mary time related stuff in the future. Now, I have a treasured photograph of my father and I in front of the cottage my great-grandfather built on Middle Bass Island in Ohio. I could not have been more than three years old. And next to my father, who was six foot four, I looked pretty pint-sized. I believe my father was holding a string of fish. In the photo, I have my little right hand wrapped around a perch. I have no original memory of the experience, but I do know that I grew up having no queasiness about fishing in Lake Erie, whether to catch them, clean them, or eat them. And my husband still hands me his fishing rod to bait it and take off any fish he might catch, but I'm not really excited when I have to take off a catfish, to be truthful. Um, But no podcast about the Great Lakes cannot talk about fishing and also about fisheries, which is valued about $7 billion annually. According to the Great Lakes Fisheries Commission, the Great Lakes support 139 native species and, of course, a few non-native species. Our three guests today bring their expertise and experiences to the show. And I want to give a shout out first to our friends at the American Sport Fishing Association, who helped with our introductions to our guests today. Um, Mr. Simpkins, I had mentioned that you're the immediate past chair of the board of the American Sport Fishing Association. Congratulations on that. Like any trade association, you represent your members in all sorts of arenas, both salt and freshwater. I was surprised to learn from your folks at the association that in many respects, freshwater fishing is bigger than saltwater fishing. Do I have that right? Yeah. uh, When you look at it from a sheer volumetric standpoint, um, there are many more opportunities um, for freshwater fishing because the number of waterways that we have and fisheries we have in the United States. And we have literally, you know, millions of miles um, of fisheries. And then you look at the coastlines. um, It gives us an opportunity to really uh, look at freshwater in in a different way. Are there issues that you dealt with in the association that were different between the two modes, between saltwater and freshwater? Well, you know, we're really focused in on ensuring clean waterways, uh, providing access, and then managing angler rights. And regardless of the fishery, um, they both have their issues. You know, we're really focused in on ensuring that the anglers that are being serviced by the association, that's the, the 55 plus million anglers that are out there that are both fresh and saltwater, have clean fisheries. And it's through the help of agencies and the work that is being done out there that we continue to have waterways that are the envy of the world. You know, providing them access and ensuring that is uh, paramount to what we do. And ensuring their rights are, are being looked for, uh, looked out for on the Hill are absolutely one of the things that we do on a regular basis. The association was not working with commercial fishing, correct? Correct. I mean, it's always part of the discussion, um, but it is a separate entity. We are, you know, focused in on the recreational fishermen, but there's never a way to 
unlink recreational and commercial fisheries because of the way that they're utilized. Um, so are, was there anything, like you said, some issues are just about um, the fishing and not about the location. But certainly the Great Lakes has had lots of things and I'm one, lots of issues over the years, as we all know. I'm wondering if there were similarities between Great Lakes issues and inland streams or um, is it, again, just about clean waters, whether it's streams or um, uh, or the Great Lakes or coastal? Well, I, again, I think that the issues are um, always going to be linked, whether they are freshwater, saltwater, um, inland fisheries versus Great Lakes. Uh, they are, in fact, linked in some aspects. Uh, I'm going to get uh, just off of the uh, Great Lakes slightly. Um, and when you look at what happened with the pebble mine up in Alaska and the saltwater fisheries, and then some of the mining issues that are happening along Lake of the Woods, uh, the issues are the same. Locations are different, right? So we look at the, those aspects of the issue and always work on behalf of the anglers so that we continue to provide what our charter is. And those are the, the points that I made earlier. Yeah, thanks. So um, I'm a recreational fisher and my my contact with sport fishing, you know, like tournaments is very, very minimal. I worked on a small island in Lake Erie called Rattlesnake Island and the owner sponsored uh, a tournament um, with, I think he honestly thought that he sent out his own folks with the idea that they'd win, but they weren't professionals. So I think he was kind of shocked um, when he actually had to provide the prize money um but it was pretty it was it was still interesting and uh, my brother actually got uh, with his license was able to use his boat and get out there but it was uh, but honestly it's very um little and a little i have very little exposure and i look forward to talking to dennis about the sport fishing side of things specifically and the tournament side specifically um in in your your term as chair of the board of the asa was for one year how long was it it's actually a two-year term um, that was up October first was the end, and I moved into the immediate past chair. And um, what are you what are you most proud of in the two years that you were there? Well, you know, during that, uh, a number of acts were, were, were passed: the uh, Great American Outdoor Act and a few other ones. And I have to give uh, a shout out uh, to Mike Leonard and the Government Affairs team there at ASA. They've done yeoman's work over the years on behalf of the fisheries and on behalf of the anglers. Um, that's one of them. Uh, from a structural standpoint, uh, we implemented a, a strategic plan at ASA that is going to carry out our direction for the next five to seven years. And really, uh, you know, when we sit together as a board, as an organization, uh, we have one common goal, and that is to ensure that, it, I'm going to sound redundant, uh, but Ensuring that anglers have access to clean waters, improve fisheries, and working with people like Dennis or Mark in order to, to get those things to happen um, are really the important aspects because ASA is not going to do it on its own. We need uh, the collective. We need to create that fishing community out there to be able to address the issues that we're facing, not just now, but 5, 10, 15 years from now. Because, as I said earlier, we are the envy of the world. Our fisheries, our waterways, the way that they are managed are the envy because we're, and I'll use the terminology, uh, a pay-for-play uh, group. 
we, through our excise taxes that we as a manufacturer happily pay, go directly into managing the resource. And as I said before, we're happy to do that. We want to ensure that there's more people that have the opportunities to go not only enjoy the waterways, but be successful when they're on them. And therefore, uh, if we're doing the right things, um, they're going to buy more St. Croix rods. They're going to buy more lures. They're going to do all those things that make the industry um, what it is uh, in the United States. Yeah, thank you for that. And we all have an interest in um, cleaner waters. And so, you know, in the spirit of, you know, swim, fish, eat, right, we um, all have a benefit of those clean waters. So thanks for the, the work that you guys have been doing to support that in all the fisheries, including the Great Lakes. Um, Dr. Mark Gaden, you are with the Great Lakes Fisheries Commission um, and a resident scientist today. Could you tell us just a little bit about the Fisheries Commission and its, uh, its um, directives? We represent the U.S.-Canada portion of the Great Lakes fishery. Uh, the fishery of the Great Lakes is shared by the two countries, and we do not have a long history of cooperation uh, over the fisheries and how they're managed and how they're extracted. So from the time of European settlement of the Great Lakes region uh, up until at least the 1950s, there is almost no cross-border cooperation. And uh, as such, the fishery suffered quite tremendously. So what the Great Lakes Fishery Commission uh, does is we exist under a treaty between the U.S. and Canada over the Great Lakes fishery. We make sure that the two countries are on the same page on a, on a number of fronts, including science, when it comes to managing the Great Lakes. Thank you for that. Uh, what is the extent of well, this prompted when you talk about Canada? Uh, is there any commercial fishing like net fishing or, you know what I mean, compared as compared to recreational fishing and sport fishing in the U.S. side, and I guess there's still some on the Canadian side? Oh, certainly, yes. And um, I think that the point about you can't decouple recreational from commercial fishing is a very good point. In the Great Lakes, we have a history, um, certainly, of uh, indigenous fishing from time immemorial, and then commercial fishing pretty much from the time of uh, settlement of the Great Lakes region. Uh, big cities like Toronto and Milwaukee, as they were attracting settlers, would often have in their advertisements, uh, it's also a great place to fish. You can make a living here, attracts immigrants. Uh, so commercial fishing always has been a part of the Great Lakes. And um, recreational fishing as well, though, as we all know, uh, recreational fishing really took off in the Great Lakes uh, after kind of after World War I, but particularly after World War II, when people had more uh, leisure time, more income. Uh, and then in the 60s, when um, some, uh, some uh, non-native salmon, salmon species were introduced to the Great Lakes to uh, promote a recreational fishery and also to eat up alewives, which was a, a nuisance fish. So we saw really a growth of the recreational fishery starting in the uh, late 50s and 1960s. And I think what happened is that over time, uh, it flipped in terms of what the uh, focus was in terms of fishing in the Great Lakes from a real strong commercial emphasis uh, right up to about the 50s or 60s to um, more of an emphasis, certainly more participation uh, from the 60s and on. Today, though, and I don't want to diminish the commercial fishery in the slightest because they, the commercial fishing operations are still a big business in the Great Lakes Basin and big in many communities on both sides of the border. Um, and in some cases, like Lake Erie, 
the commercial versus the recreational fishery is about equal, uh, maybe uh, more by, uh, by, by some on the Canadian side vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. side and more recreational on the U.S. side stands to reason as well, given the population on the U.S. side compared to the Canadian side of Lake Erie. But it's a, it's a, it's a big business. In other parts of the Great Lakes Basin, you still have commercial fishing as the foundation of some local communities. We're seeing the emergence of uh, commercial fishing to serve more local markets too, like um, farmers markets or to, um, uh, to serve uh, tourists and the like and to maintain that heritage. But as you said, Helen, at the beginning here, where not all Great Lakes ports are the same, uh, it goes, it stands with commercial fishing as well. Some ports are very big uh, with commercial fishing and some ports are very big, uh, like in uh, Dennis Eads world uh, with uh, say charter fishing or the recreational fishing. Um, and that's kind of how the Great Lakes are. It just depends on where you are and what the focus is. You talked about the salmon as an introduced species, which had lots of positive benefits. So let me jump into invasives that we didn't introduce um, without um, calling to blame any um, sources. Um, but um, what's the situation? It's, it appears to me that there has been a leveling off on invasives. Um, is that because everything that's going to come from the Baltic has come from the Baltic? Regarding non-native species, uh, some were introduced to the Great Lakes on purpose, like uh, the salmon species or carp and brown trout, um, steelhead. These are important species to the recreational fishery. Some of them are as early, old as European settlement of the region where people brought a little bit of home to the Great Lakes region, and uh, they just become part of the Great Lakes. But uh, a number of species came into the Great Lakes accidentally, and there were several ways that they came in. Uh, the first vector were uh, shipping canals. So these were canals like the Erie Canal, uh, that was constructed to move uh, barge traffic across upstate New York, connected the Hudson River to the Great Lakes. And the first big invader that came in via that waterway, like swimming its way in, was the sea lamprey. The sea lamprey essentially changed everything. Uh, it's a top predator that attaches to fish with a suction cup mouth. Just Google it and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's like something out of an alien horror movie. And they feed on the fish's blood and body fluids and uh, pose an existential threat to the commercial fishing industry of the Great Lakes Basin by about the 1940s. Part of the Fishery Commission's job under the treaty is to control the sea lamprey, which we do. Um, it is a very controllable species, but it's an ongoing um, control effort that, that uh, goes on in the Great Lakes Basin. Uh, we control it um, throughout the Great Lakes Basin. We've reduced the populations by about 90 to 95 percent, and it's a it's considered to be a success story. Other invasive species that came into the Great Lakes uh, swam their way in through shipping canals. Uh, we had a wave of invaders uh, through ballast water that would come in after the opening of the St. Lawrence Seaway. Uh, and then there are other vectors too, like um, the trade of live organisms, bait, um, things that might cling onto your boat if it's moved from one waterway to another, um, and um, say the trade of, of live fish for fish markets. Uh, so, you know, invasive species, uh, lots of ways to get into the system. And uh, we've had about 180 non-native species that have come into the Great Lakes over time. Uh, not all of them uh, harmful to the system. Some of them can't even reproduce in freshwater. 
but there is a dirty couple of dozen that have really changed the ecosystem. And, and uh, it's the things that we really have to grapple with uh, in perpetuity, because once a species gets in and takes root, you're not going to get rid of them. I understood that zebra mussels um, kind of invade the space and impact um, bass. Um, is that correct? Or what? what is the, I mean, certainly we know how zebra mussels filter the water. We see that. We know what it's like to have them wash up on the shore. Um, but how do, how do they impact and how do they compete with the native species? Zebra mussels changed everything. And their cousin, the quagga mussel, together are called dracinid mussels, were first seen in the Great Lakes um, in the mid-1980s and have been spreading throughout the system ever since. Uh, they can occupy the quagga mussels, especially very deep uh, parts of the Great Lakes and their filter feeders. So what they're doing is they are uh, pulling the rug out from the bottom of the food web. They're eating um, the, uh, the, the low end of the food web, the uh, like algae um, and filter feeding the water. What that does is that robs uh, food from everything else in the ecosystem. So whether you're a fish that eats that or you're a fish that eats the fish that eats that, you're going to have you're going to be affected by uh, the zebra and quagga mussels that have really proliferated throughout the Great Lakes Basin, probably in the quadrillions. They're just everywhere. Um, there's no getting rid of them. Uh, there are ways to deal with zebra mussels on, on localized areas, you know, maybe on a, on a dock or um, if they're in, uh, you know, um, um, clogging pipes, for example, for water intake pipes, which is a problem with zebra mussels. But really the ecosystemic changes that zebra mussels cause has been pretty widespread. Um, more than 30 years later, scientists are still coming to grips with what the impact of zebra mussels have been uh, to understand, are, is it related to declines in whitefish or some of the uh, small zooplankton species on the low end of the food web? But what we do know is that they do filter feed and that does rob essentially the entire ecosystem of the food that's out there that everything depends upon. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, you know, I, I in the beginning, uh, not really teasingly, but I do admit I was maritime transportation. We do understand the impact of international shipping on the Great Lakes and ballast water. Um, so please understand, I'm not trying to make light of it or, or dismiss the impact. Um, I see it, feel it myself being from Lake Erie. On one hand, you could get in the water with a, a, a swim mask and actually see things around you. On the other hand, we do know, like you said, it has robbed um, the food web um, and that impact. We have to be ever vigilant about where these invasive species are coming from and what the vectors are, uh, whether it's a canal or um, the trade of live organisms or um, say ballast water or um, the like. We're not scratching our heads wondering how these things are getting here. So it's more like you have to uh, uh, understand the vector and whether you're allowing that um, waterway or that passageway or that way of getting here to remain open. And you have to find ways to close them. So with ballast water, for example, there was uh, many years of, of policy um, and work being done to try and address that vector whether it's to um, simply close it off, which was not uh, feasible, or um, do you install technologies in ballast tanks that would treat the ballast water before it was discharged with, and then um, hopefully have no live organisms in it, um, swish the tanks out in the open ocean so that it would reduce the number of organisms. I think by and large, um, most of the ballast water measures that have been put in place over the years um, have been successful in reducing the 
the rate of introductions via the ballast water vector into the Great Lakes. There's a recent article that um, folks at NOAA have done that talked about the movement of invasive species. And uh, it's very clear that the, uh, the, the rate of species coming in through ballast water has decreased over time, which is a very good thing. Uh, but there are other vectors now that are uh, very frightening. Uh, there's an artificial waterway that connects the Great Lakes to the uh, Mississippi Basin, and that's a two-way street. And so we may have heard of these carps, uh, bighead and silver carp, for example, that are threatening to swim their way into the Great Lakes. So that, that's a vector that has to be addressed. Uh, we still have very open uh, doors when it comes to importing species for the pet industry. And we presume them to be innocent, um, and 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 uh, before <laughs> uh, before we allow them to be imported, when in fact we have to really take a step back from a scientific perspective and really assess the risk. What would happen if this species did escape? Because some of these species, like snakehead and and the like, have caused considerable damage. So that's what invasive species policy it's all about. It's understanding the risk, the vectors, and then how you can close those. You know, the amount of work, I mean, you're talking about the Asian carp, commonly referred as Asian carp um, in the uh, the Chicago Ship and Sanitary Canal and uh, the challenges of keeping it out of keeping them out of Lake Michigan. Um, so I know that the Sea Grant programs in the Great Lakes, you know, are finding ways to eat the Asian carp and recipes for Asian carp. I think the real issue is just, uh, like you said, keeping it out of the Great Lakes. It is a whole, I think it's a whole episode by itself to talk about the nature of Asian carp. Well, um, you're not going to eat your way or commercial fish your way out of this problem. And it's not a good idea to create an industry for something you're trying to get rid of. Yeah, I, I, fair. And I think you also almost need a crane to get those things out of the water. They're so big. <laughs> yes. you know, yes, I, don't right. think, I don't think there's anything that St. Croix rods can build that can catch and pull in an Asian carp. So um, if I could go to, 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 Mar, uh, excuse me, to Dennis, Dennis Ede, um, you talked, uh, I mentioned that you are with the Michigan um, Salmon and Steelhead Association, but could you tell us a little bit about yourself? And kind of, you know, your history with recreational and sport fishing in the Great Lakes. Yes, I can do that for you, Helen. Um, actually, I got very involved uh, back in 1998. Uh, I had two sons growing up and they were teenagers. And um, they showed an interest in uh, fishing. At least my oldest boy was the uh, catalyst. And he got a job crewing on a charter boat on Lake Michigan just for the summer and had a marvelous time. And I thought to myself, I was a, an executive with American Seating Company at the time in Grand Rapids in uh, corporate uh, relations and human resources. And um, I decided that uh, it might be wise to consider purchasing a boat so that I could keep my two sons around Holland and not have them go off to college and not come back so that um, my wife and I would have an opportunity to see uh, see the boys after they uh, matriculated. But as it turned out, I became extremely interested and involved. And our, um, our boat, we um, set up for tournament fishing and we started to enter one of or more of the 13 uh, tournament stops on the Great Lakes for uh, salmon and steelhead and lake trout. And we had a marvelous time doing it. 
We competed for over 20 years, and um, my boys have gone on to be uh, successful business people and still remain active in fishing. I have tailored back a little bit. I don't spend as much time on the big water, as we call it, but I do have a very nice um, 18 and a half foot tracker uh, with a Merc on the back, and I do a lot of walleye fishing, a uh, little bit in Lake Erie, a lot over here in Lake Michigan, plus uh, inland lakes like Lake Lelona up near uh, the uh, tip of the mitt. So uh, that's how I got involved. As a result, I joined the Michigan Steelhead and Salmon Fishing Fishermen's Association as a chapter member right here in Holland. And before I knew it, I got drafted to be the PR director for the chapter. And then they pulled me in into the state organization as vice president. And when the um, executive director retired, uh, they asked me to uh, take that position. And um, I had just retired from the corporate world. So I decided, well, I'll give it a try. It's something I love to do. And uh, let's see if we can help the uh, uh, organization and the fishery at the same time. So you lived in Holland, Michigan. Does that mean that you primarily started fishing in Lake Sinclair? No, Lake Sinclair is closer to Detroit. Um, I will be on the west side of Michigan on the east coast of Lake Michigan. Okay. And I'll be midway up, right across from Racine, Wisconsin, uh, laterally, uh, and between uh, uh, cities like St. Joe, Michigan, and uh, Muskegon, Michigan. I'll be in the middle there. Okay. Well, I clearly have to get out my map. Um, <laughs> so sorry about that. Um, so what is it? To, well, first, I got to ask you, you mentioned this in your bio. What is the 333 Tournament Trail? It is, it's an opportunity to compete on more than just one port destination. Um, we found early on that tournament fishing caught on, but we needed to appeal to a fisherman who really wants to do it on a consistent basis and not just one time in May when their particular port decides to have a local tournament. So what we did, um, and I say we, I joined much later than the originator, which was Fred McDonald and now his son, Scott McDonald out of Manistee, uh, run the 333 tournament uh, trail. Uh, they have 13 tournaments. They even have Sheboygan as one of their locations in Wisconsin. Um, they have done Waukegan, Illinois, but the majority of the tournaments are held on the east coast of Lake Michigan, from Michigan City to the south, and all the way to Traverse City in the north part of the um, peninsula. Wow. So it's cool to learn that this is a Great Lakes-specific tournament. Um, and so at that point then, you're starting to see the same. Did it work? I mean, you, start, you started to see uh, tournament uh, folks go to different tournaments and not just one a year? That's correct. In fact, they have two divisions, a professional division and an amateur division. And the professional division, I would think that probably all of those um, – 
captains, traversed the east side of Michigan and the um, uh, west side of Lake Michigan, which is really the Wisconsin shoreline, uh, to fish in tournaments. Uh, there's money to be made. Uh, most of the tournaments, uh, a pro captain can win up to $10,000 if he catches uh, the most fish and the best weight and accumulates the most points over a three-day weekend. It's usually a Friday um, uh, event and then a Saturday and Sunday main event uh, at the port of call. Um, usually there are uh, as many as five crewmen on board. Uh, you have one that works each side of the transom on the back of the boat, uh, setting lines, netting fish, uh, re-rigging uh, uh, terminal tackle, and you have a captain who typically is responsible for watching the electronics, gauging the currents, setting the course, the speed, the direction. It's, it's a science that's just unbelievable. And I know uh, Jesse knows because his rods are uh, even designed to help the uh, uh, salmon and steelhead fishermen be most effective plying the waters of the Great Lakes. So it's, it's quite an activity. Well, for someone like me who really was just a walleye perch kind of a person, tell me about the salmon fishing. Isn't that a deep water fish? Don't you have to do that in deeper waters than you would in Lake Erie? Uh, typically, the salmon are pelagic fish, so they don't live near the bottom and they don't necessarily live on top. They, they swim in the water column. And uh, their migration depends on the bait fish, which are typically alewife. Typically, 95% of their diet is alewife. Uh, but what they're doing is they're following the currents, uh, taking advantage of uh, prey fish that uh, happen to be schooling. And so we catch them typically anywhere from 40 feet down to as deep as 200 feet. But I would say the 200-foot excursion is usually late summer where you can't find the fish, and you, so you decide to venture out to 300 feet of water or 250 feet of water and, and fish down there. But the majority of fish are taken between 40 and 60 feet of water, and, um, and of course, they're found near shore in the spring and a little further from shore midsummer. Uh, and then the fish restage uh, in the fall in shallow water, and they prepare to make their runs up the rivers to spawn. And so that's an exciting time because it's, we call it uh, um, harbor fishing or uh, <laughs> the, a lot of boats in a confined area all after the same <laughs> fish that happen to be staging outside of a channel. So it's exciting times. Are there parts, uh, you, you said you're primarily on the eastern shore of Lake Michigan, but are there areas on the Great Lakes specifically that are you really go to fish the salmon or, or fish the steelhead? Uh, yes. I would say that the two most uh, uh, prolific ports for sport fishing are Ludington, Michigan, and then uh, St. Joe and Michigan City in the spring uh, down in the lower part of Lake Michigan. 
Grand Haven, Michigan is a good port as well in the summer. But uh, Ludington and that Manistee area usually hold the largest king salmon and coho um, that the, the lake produces. And we're talking about fish that could weigh anywhere from 22 pounds to 35 pounds. These are really beasts <laughs> in the water. And, um, uh, but those ports are probably the most prolific in terms of opportunity. But you can catch salmon up and down the coast all year, but principally um, they move from the south of the lake to the north of the lake. And then in the fall, they stage around rivers that are um, famous for allowing salmon to reproduce. The Pier Marquette, the Grand River, down in uh, the Grand Rapids area, the Muskegon, the Manistee, the Little Manistee happens to produce what we call the broodstock strain. These are fish that we use to uh, collect eggs and raise in hatcheries. About a million fish are introduced a year from uh, the hatcheries, both in Wisconsin and uh, Lake, uh, or, or the Michigan DNR. And uh, those are the ones that are the put and take, the ones that we typically uh, let grow for two years and three years and then harvest. But there are a lot of wild salmon and um, salmon that have adapted to our environment here and who are healthy and strong and vigorous uh, all year long in the system. Well, let me let me uh, ask, um, go back to Mark Gaden from the, the Great Lakes Fisheries uh, Commission. Um, if you, if someone says to you, and we talked about the health of the, of, you know, the salmon, generally speaking, how would you rate the health of Great Lakes fisheries? Where you are and what you're uh, fishing for, but the health of Great Lakes fisheries are very strong. It's a $7 billion uh, fishery, as you mentioned in the intro. And um, part of that, many of those species are naturally occurring. Um, so they're not stocked to bolster their stocks. They're doing well. Uh, walleye, yellow perch um, is an example. And then some, as Dennis said, um, are dependent on hatcheries to help them uh, succeed, but there's also a fair amount of, of reproduction or natural reproduction that occurs in those species. But it is a, is a vibrant fishery, and I will say it's well-managed. Uh, the states and the province of Ontario and the tribal agencies have devoted a considerable amount of biological staff and, and there's a lot of science being conducted on how to protect and improve these fisheries. And I'm a big fan of, 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 of what Dennis's group does and Jesse's with the ASA. Um, I'm on the uh, board for the um, uh, Freshwater Committee of the American Sport Fishing Association. And these are people who are very, very dedicated to making sure that the fisheries are managed properly, that science is applied, that um, that decisions that are made are good and that dollars that, um, as Jesse says, that the industry uh, pays in excise taxes go back into conservation. Um, we are not where we were in the 1960s when rivers were burning and uh, you had terrible ecological problems in the Great Lakes and fish couldn't reproduce. It's a very different uh, ball game today than it was uh, a couple of generations ago, and that's good. Uh, gets people out on the water, uh, people can fish, the fish is wholesome, uh, and it's uh, good for the economy as well. 
Thank you. Well, thank you. That's a wonderful, positive um, report. Um, Jesse Simpkins, go back to Mr. Simpkins. So I, before we end, I really have to ask you about the rods. Um, h- how are you, what are you using to get a 35-pound fish out of the water? I know they have big fish in, in, the, in this ocean, got it. But in the Great Lakes, because it's, it's a different type of fishing, right, than it is out on the open ocean, what makes you know, a, 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 a pulse special? Well, you know, uh, that's a, and he's talking about a very, Dennis talking about a very specific type of fishing. If you're fishing for salmon that are, you know, 22 to 35 pounds in 200 feet of water, you're generally trolling for them, uh, you know, using giant uh, downriggers. Uh, and that's going to have a very specific length, power, and action to it. You know, the diversity of fish, right, drives the diversity of fishing rods. And so uh, I can fish for a coho out uh, trolling for them in 40 feet of water and use a specific type of rod. But if I'm wading the St. Joe's, right, and I've got an in-hand rod, it's going to be something completely different. And, you know, we here at St. Croix, we produce about 900 different styles of fishing rods um, in our facility. And it's because we're all anglers. We're fishing for salmon. We're fishing for steelhead. We're fishing for bass, smallmouth and largemouth. We're fishing for muskie or pike, uh, walleye, perch, panfish. Um, and so the number of techniques that surround the, uh, you know, getting those fish is as diverse as the, the uh, number of fish. So we've got to be very open. Um, and the nice thing is we live in an area uh, here in the Northwoods of Wisconsin, um, where fishing is part of our DNA. And I literally can drive and go to the Mississippi River, or I can go to Lake Superior and I fish Schwamigan Bay often. I can head east and fish Lake Michigan and Green Bay. Um, I've fished Lake Erie a number of times. Um, it's just wonderful that we can go ahead here in the state of Wisconsin, here at St. Croix, and produce rods for all these varieties of anglers and fisheries that are out there. Well, um, I find it fascinating that 900 types of rods, that's amazing to me. So, I mean, gosh, it seems to me that um, bamboo was a big deal in fishing. Do they even use bamboo rods anymore? Well, some, you know, that, that ends up being some fly rods are still made out of split bamboo, and they tend to be very, very custom. Um, but no, bamboo, I would say there is still some of that in the deep south where they use it with um, live bait fishing, whether it's uh, worms or crickets. Um, you can still find bamboo. But now it's every, you know, the the carbon fibers that we use today and the technologies that we have built into rods is really remarkable. And to your point, I could probably, if I set up the, the reel correctly, catch that same 35-pound uh, salmon on a 5-foot light-action rod as I would a 13-foot downrigging rod, depending on how you want to be able to fight it. Well, I'll tell you, you really want to tick somebody off. That would be to break their favorite perch pole. Oh, yeah. You know, because <laughs> there's something about that perch pole, right, that catches the perch. And, uh, and, and it's Helen, I'll tell you this. We'll make more if they break them. 
<laughs> I have no doubt. Um, golly, I, this is maybe, Tyler, this may be the fastest hour we have ever spent on an episode. And I'm so sad that we've got to um, um, save some of this for probably another episode because there's just so much to talk about when it comes to the Great Lakes. Um, if I could, Dr. Gaden, is there anything that you would like to say before we wrap? I think um, I think what I'd like to say is, um, you know, invasive species is something that we need to be ever vigilant about. And um, if the sea lamprey has taught us anything, it's worth the effort to keep these things out in the first place than having to try and deal with it um, in perpetuity. Um, the fishery is just too valuable to put at risk from these species that just um, come in here and wreak havoc. But uh, otherwise, I'm very optimistic about the future of the fishery. Um, as your other guests have, have um, indicated, it's, it's very well managed and, uh, and uh, the people who fish it care about it as much as the people who manage it. Uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic about uh, where things are going. Thank you. Dennis Eid, if someone's going to, you know, just to take a vacation in the Great Lakes and doesn't really know how to fish, what kind of um, suggestion would you make to them um, to get started? Helen, that's an easy question. I think the charter fishing industry has done a marvelous job of introducing a, a new person to the enjoyment and uh, opportunity of, of sport fishing. And I would say that it doesn't matter what you're targeting. Uh, if you want to fish for walleye, there are some excellent charter captains that will be happy to t show you how to do it instruct you, provide you with the guidance you need, and even advise as to what equipment you should purchase initially in order to get into the sport. If you want to experience the thrill of uh, the world's largest freshwater sport fishery, which is the Great Lakes, then find a charter captain in a port that is typically known for producing good-sized catches and uh, uh, charter with that captain and really enjoy a, a half-day charter with your family and, and get acquainted with what you've been missing. Thanks. That makes a lot of sense. Just go to the local folks who, who know what, when, and where. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Mr. Simpkins, um, thanks for all of your service uh, with the association. And otherwise, I know all of you have been engaged. Thank you for everything you're doing to um, you know, preserve our, our freshwater um, resources. Um, any, you know, what is your hope for the future of Great Lakes fishing? Well, uh, I want to continue to see it uh, improve and maintain the fisheries. I don't think they've been healthier than they have been at any point in my lifetime right now. I mean, Lake Erie has abundant uh, giant walleye. Um, you know, the smallmouth fisheries uh, of Sturgeon Bay and, you know, Lake Michigan are remarkable. Um, they just continue to get better. And uh, it's the work of the collective group. And that's not just ASA, but it's the community that makes that happen. So I want to thank everybody else who's been part of that. Thank you so much. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, just a terrific conversations. You really know your stuff. And I can't thank you enough. Now, this wraps up another episode of North Coast Chronicles Tales from the Great Lakes. The creation and content for North Coast Chronicles is by me, Helen Broll, and co-produced and engineered by Tyler Buckingham of the American Shoreline Podcast Network. The sea shanty for our podcast was recorded by Catherine Chambers. Send me your comments, ideas for future podcasts, or to be a sponsor to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. Join us next time on North Coast Chronicles as we continue our Great Lakes adventure. Until then, be good to one another.